Those things are very significant. The scripture speaks of those things. We're going to look at a portion of scripture that perhaps maybe even prelude some of those events. So it's going to be interesting, and I think that, as Jesus said, be wise, be the servant that is looking for the master's return, be the faithful servant. And I don't know when exactly these things are going to come to pass, but we know that they are going to come to pass. I think that this year that we have seen events come to pass very rapidly that speak of the end times, that speak of the soon return of Jesus Christ. You guys know that in the last days there's going to be a one-world government. There's going to be a one-world economic system. There's going to be a one-world religious system. And Israel's going to be the epicenter of all the world's troubles as the Middle East is going to heat up. If there are four things that we're seeing rapidly that we're moving into that is there is very high tension in the Middle East. War is being spoken of often. We know that, um, that with the economic crisis and worldwide recession, that we are moving towards a moral of an economic system that the world leaders are talking about, making it a world economic system. We know with the events of uh, the G20 summit and um, the different things going on, even the Copenhagen summit that is taking place with global warming and, and the nations coming together, that there's a lot of talk about a one-world government. We also know that there is more that is taking place that is uh, causing the world to look at a, a world religious system or coming together all the religions, and that is being talked about uh, very, very much. I believe that Christians, that um, as Christians that are devoted to the truth of the scriptures and to the Lord Jesus Christ, that um, it's going to get more and more intense for us whatever that might mean. I think worldwide, more persecution, whether, you know, how that increases in the United States, I don't know. Um, it's going to be more of a challenge. It's going to take real courage for you and I to stand for the truth of the gospel. Because as I spoke about on Sunday, as we we're going through Colossians chapter 1, that speaks very clearly about the preeminence of Jesus Christ, supremacy of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, that there are those who don't like us to proclaim that truth. But yet that's the truth of what God's word has to say. More and more the pressure is being put on us of plurality, of being inclusive, and all religions are an expression of God in all of this. It is being taught our kids that. And as I was walking out and uh, looking at our kids, once again I was reminded how important the ministry is to our children that we're giving to them the truth of God's word and establishing in that truth and, and, and encourage them in their faith in Jesus Christ. Because we are seeing that there is more of a compromise uh, in what we are telling our kids. Um, this article came out today, um, or actually yesterday, I believe, maybe today or yesterday, no, two days ago, 14th of December, Fox News Radio says second graders sing about Allah. And... It says a battle over religion is brewing in central Indiana. This is Midwest, you know, uh, central United States, the Midwest. Central Indiana, after a public school, wanted second graders to sing a song declaring Allah is God. The phrase was removed just before the performance after a national conservation, conservation conservative group launched a protest. The principal of Lateran Road Elementary School in Fishers, Indiana. It's a little town in Indiana. 
said they were trying to teach the inclusiveness through their holiday production. Include references to Christmas, Hanukkah, uh, Ramadan, Kwanzaa, and some other things. However, no other deity other than Allah was referred to in the show. It went off without a hitch, uh, uh, Danielle Thompson told the Indianapolis Star. Several families thought that it was a nice program, but others didn't. And it talks about how there was some um, of a, uh, American Family Association and a conservative group and a Christian group um, was questioning that. And uh, because one of the, the daughters that, uh, of one of those groups, his name is David Hogan, um, came home, and he had been learning that his daughter had been singing that Allah is God. So what they did is they took out that, that phrase out of uh, the, the uh, program before they sang it. But here's what the children were assigned to sing this. Allah is God, we recall at dawn, praying till midnight during Ramadan. At this joyful time, we pray happiness for you. Allah be with you all your life through. When it came time to perform the Christian part of Christmas, children were assigned to say and sing this. I don't know there was a little boy at the manger. What child is this? I'm not sure if there was a little boy or not. Then why did you paint one of your nativity windows? I just thought, if there was a little boy, I'd like to know exactly what he say. I have no idea what that means, but I do know that it means this, that they're questioning whether... There was a Christ child born. And that's the mentality that we're starting to see. And we know that in the last days that Satan is going to be at work. We know there's going to be a great falling away. And that we know that there's going to be a given over to doctrines of demons. And I believe that as we see that, as the scripture talks about very specifically, that in the last days, that it's going to be a great delusion. There's going to be a great worldwide false church that we're seeing even the foundations of that taking place. So come out New Year's Eve, and uh, we're going to have a lot to talk about, researching a lot of things, and I think that you're going to see that we are indeed in the last days. And Jesus said, when you see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. And so we know that when the Bible says that these events are going to happen, that they are going to happen. So come on out. I think you'll be tremendously blessed. Bring somebody, which brings me to the last point, and then we'll get into our study that uh, there's a flyer, green flyers out there. You'll have one in your bulletin this week. Uh, gives the Christmas Eve family service, again, 5 o'clock early service, and then the prophecy update on the 31st at 7 o'clock in our address, and give that to somebody. That's your assignment, okay? That's all I ask of you uh, for this Christmas, for me. Would you please give this to somebody? And um, I still really believe that the best way for a church to grow you can do advertisements. You can be on the radios, and that's a blessing. But I think it's just people inviting people. And as you invite people and pray for people to come, uh, that's where you see that the church is being effective in reaching others. Father, we do want to just um, talk about your word tonight and read through your word as we continue in this book, the book of Deuteronomy. I pray that you bless our study tonight, and Lord, that we would make application to the things that you would have us to that we would learn uh, how it is that you would want us to live that pleases you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We see that Moses at this point in the book of Deuteronomy, he's addressing the children of Israel for the last time. Really, we're going to see here um, that he's going to be wrapping up this sermon that he's been giving to the children of Israel. It's 
The book of Deuteronomy takes place over a, a chronological time of about 30 days. And as Moses is given these series, that is, he's giving this, this second law, that's Deuteronomy, what it means in the Septuagint. It's not a different law. It's a new generation that's getting ready to go into the promised land. And so he is getting them ready as he is giving them the covenant that was given to their fathers. He's saying, hey, the covenant God made with your fathers is for you as well. The law there at Mount Sinai that was given to your fathers that died out in the wilderness, this law is for you and for your children as well. And so here is Moses giving them that law, giving them the civil and ceremonial, the religious laws, the guidelines and how they were to do battle because they're going to be a nation. Their inheritance is going to be given to them. And so all these, these specific and miscellaneous laws that we're going to continue to see that Moses will wrap up in a few chapters, in chapter 26. And then in chapters 27 or 27 and 28, we see that that covenant is confirmed on Mount Nebo and Gerasim, the curses and the blessings they, they uh, confirm that covenant with the Lord, the children of Israel. Moses is going to praise God after that. Then he's going to give a final blessing to the children of Israel. Then Joshua is going to be commissioned to be the new leader, and then Moses dies. And he's going to be buried there on Mount Nebo, and then the children of Israel are going to mourn for 30 days, and then the book of Joshua starts that we will get into after the first of the year, and he will take the children of Israel into the promised land. So he's finishing up here this sermon uh, that he's been given to them, uh, the law that he's repeating to them. In chapter 24, uh, we see that he gives the law concerning divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So here we see the law concerning divorce, that the husband can grant the wife a certificate of divorce uh, if he saw uncleanness in her. Now we see in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, that it was the religious leaders that came to Jesus and asked him about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And they came to Jesus and they said, is it permitted that a man could divorce his wife? And Jesus at that time, he would give them the definition of marriage. Matter of fact, he would quote clear back to Genesis chapter 1. He says, don't you know, you know, haven't you read that in the beginning he made them male and female? Genesis chapter 1. And a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Whenever I have a couple come in for premarital counseling, what I will do is I will ask them what the definition of marriage is. And we will go back to Genesis chapter 2 so they understand that marriage was God-ordained. And God gives the definition of marriage, that a man shall leave father and mother, that is, there is a leaving that takes place. It does not mean that that couple that gets married, that there's no more honoring mom and dad, there's no more loving them, there's no more respecting them. Of course there is. But there is a leaving that takes place because now you are being joined together 
as one flesh, and you are starting your family. And so in that marriage definition, there is a one flesh relationship that takes place. So there's a leaving of mom and dad that takes place and joined to your wife. And we don't fully understand what it means that they're joined together as one flesh. There is something spiritually that you, that you sense and you feel. The Bible declares it. And that's why whenever there is difficulty in a marriage, there is separation and a divorce, there's real hurt that comes along with that. And so there is that one flesh relationship that takes place that is there. So it is marriage that is God-ordained. It is not man-ordained. God gives the definition of marriage. What happens is, is that man comes along and tries to redefine marriage. Man comes along, the world comes along and says, well, marriage should be between, you know, two women or two, two men. And the Bible says it's between a man and a woman. And so Jesus, he would go back clear to the garden, which shows me that Jesus believed in Adam and Eve, that he believed in the creation story. And the reason I point that out to you, because there are those who will say, ah, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that's all make-believe or myth or just allegories or whatever it is. Jesus put his approval on it. So he gives them the definition of marriage. And in that, he says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, is what he said to the religious leaders. In other words, Jesus confirmed that it is God's intent that when a man and woman are joined in that holy covenant, that, that, that holy institution, Malachi tells us, it's God's holy institution, marriage, that the intent of God is that they remain married for the rest of their lives. So Jesus says, what God has put together, let no man put us under or tear apart. And it is God's intention that, that when we get married, that we be married and remain married as long as you both shall live, as you are joined to your spouse and you become one flesh. But then the religious leaders would say, why then was Moses allowed to give a certificate of divorce? And it would be as they were asking that question, Jesus answered and said, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, in Jesus' days, there was two main thoughts about Deuteronomy chapter 24 here. When Moses here says that if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. There was two main thoughts about what constitutes uncleanness. There was a liberal um, rabbi that had the thought that being unclean could institute a number of things. Uncleanness, the definition of that um, could be different things besides sexual immorality. The more conservative thought by another rabbi, Shammai, he said that uncleanness is defined as definitely sexual immorality. Now, a couple of thoughts for us as we go through this, because the debates have gone on and on and on throughout the centuries about what constitutes uncleanness here in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, you think with me, and I was thinking about this, and I looked it up, and that is part of the debate. But some say it's got to be more than sexual immorality or adultery. Because we have seen in the law, what is the punishment for immorality or adultery? It's being stoned to death. Here, a certificate of divorce was given. But with that said, so some say that leaves the door open for maybe something else, more uncleanness. I think personally that Jesus answered the question. When he said that a certificate of divorce, Moses said that you could give, because of the hardness of your hearts. But he went on to say 
that if you divorce, if a husband divorces his wife and marries another, then except for the case of sexual immorality, that he has committed adultery. So I think he answers that that uncleanness is sexual immorality. We know in the Christmas story that when Joseph and Mary were in that espousal period, you see, when Mary became pregnant, of course, pregnant by the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, she was a virgin, knew no man, she was espoused to Joseph. They were in that period called the betrothal period. And in ancient Israel, they would go through three stages. They would, first of all, the arrangement would be made that they would get married. Oftentimes, the parents would make those arrangements when they were young. If that was to continue, then they would go through when they were teenagers, 16 years old or so. And it's believed that that Mary was about 16 years old when uh, she uh, was pregnant with Jesus. They were in uh, Mary and Joseph that what was called the espousal period, or she was betrothed to him. And Luke makes that very, very clear. And same with Matthew chapter 1. And so in that espousal period, it would be kind of like the engagement period that we are used to knowing here in, in, in our culture. A couple goes through an engagement period, and then they get married. The espousal period, they were legally married, but they did not live together, and they did not consummate the marriage. They did not know each other physically. We know that as the culture, we know that that took place with Joseph and Mary because Mary spent much of that espousal period with who? With Elizabeth. When she was pregnant with John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, you can go through it, and when she came home, she returned to her own house. Luke chapter 1, verse 56. She didn't return to Joseph's house. She returned to her own house. So they're in that espousal period. Mary becomes pregnant. Can you imagine how difficult it was for her to tell Joseph? that I haven't known a man. So it says there in Matthew chapter 1 that she was going to, he was going to put her away secretly. So the debate goes on that perhaps the certificate of divorce was for the husband who did not want to have that severe punishment that was dished out. Joseph loved Mary, and it was hard for him to understand what was going on. So he didn't want to bring her to the gate of the city and have the judges judge her and, and take it out in stone. He was going to grant that certificate of divorce. That's what you had to do even in that espousal period, to put her away secretly. But then the angel came to, to Joseph and said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sin. So I think that Jesus, back to Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, that it is Jesus that said uncleanness is defined as sexual immorality. And don't think that it was just a man that could grant a certificate of divorce because Jesus answered in Mark chapter 10 that if a woman divorces her husband and marries another except for sexual immorality, they've committed adultery. What am I saying here? I think God is showing us that he looks at marriage as for a lifetime and very serious. And there is biblical cases that he gives where there is divorce that can be granted without there being sin. In the case of adultery, sexual immorality. We look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Corinthians had a lot of questions about marriage because many of the Corinthians were coming out of paganism. They were getting saved and and some of them were married to an unbeliever, and they were asking Paul the question, should I remain married to this unbeliever? 
Should I continue on having physical relationships with my husband? Paul writes back and says, yes, and you're to give yourselves to each other, except if you, you know, separate for a time of prayer and fasting. And then he would say that if the unbelieving spouse wants to remain in the house and married to you, you're to remain married to them. And it's interesting that also Paul said that if you are, you know, divorced, remain single unless you be reconciled back to your husband. Now here we just read that if the wife, the husband grants the wife's certificate of divorce, she goes and marries another, and then he ends up dying, that second husband, she's not to come back to her original husband. There is again a lot of debate, why is that being said? Some suggest because that first husband, perhaps he was married, and, and the Lord's trying to prevent from multiple wives uh, once again, that for that wife to go back to her first husband who maybe already has a wife been remarried. Others say that God is just showing the seriousness of sin. I, I want to say this. The divorce is very real, and is very real in the church. And there's all kinds of different circumstances and situations that happen. I've been dealing with couples for 17 years. And I know what God's Word has to say, that marriage is God's holy institution, the intention of marriage, to take it very, very seriously. When a couple comes to me, I require them, before I marry them, to go through premarital counseling. It's not difficult counseling, but it can be pretty intense counseling. Because if they formally come to me and desire for me to give those vows in exchange of rings, I want them to understand what the definition of marriage is, what God has to say about marriage, what the intent of God is in marriage, what he has to say about love, what the responsibility of husbands are, responsibility of wives are, what it is, how it is that you treat each other, communicate to each other, how you deal with anger, what's the atmosphere of your home, decisions that you make together, decisions that the man needs to make as he's been ordained to be the head of the house, how it is that you raise your children, all these things that we will go over, that we will look at very, very carefully. So we try to go over these things, and, and I want couples to understand that. I also know that, unfortunately, many in the church have gone through divorce. And when Jesus says that if you divorce one and marry another, you've committed adultery, he did not say that you continue in adultery. In other words, Jesus is not saying that divorce is the unpardonable sin, that there is forgiveness and God's love remains, and there is God's compassion. And I know that God's desire for the very best for us is to remain married, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And I know that some in the fellowship have been remarried and God is blessing your marriage and you're, you're believers now. And I want to say this, be committed to your marriage vows. And I pray for the marriages that are here. And one of the things that the Lord has put on my heart because, you know, marriages, um, you know, today there's a lot of stress and strain in marriages today. And one of the things that the Lord has put on my heart is to do perhaps a marriage enrichment class on like Thursday nights in January and February for a few weeks just to go over some of these things to encourage couples in their marriages and stuff. 
But God's desire was that they would remain married, and Jesus answers that, and there's, there's a lot we can go over. But verse 5, he goes on and says, When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So interesting here that the first year they were free from military service to bring happiness to their wife. Now, this isn't where if... We've got cases where we've had people that they got married, and within their first year, the husband joined the military, and he got sent off, got sent off to Iraq or Afghanistan. This is not saying that, that if you get married that you should not go into the military first year. This was given to the children of Israel. But there is something here that I want us to understand, and it says husbands, that as they were to stay at home for that year, to, to make their wives happy and um, bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. And husbands, I pray that that's something that you would do. Husbands, your responsibility, the best that you can with God's help, is to make your wife happy. Your responsibility is to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 3 says you're to live with her in an understanding way. So, you, husband, have been ordained to be the head of the house, again, Ephesians chapter 5 and also 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the man is the head of the wife, your responsibility, love her as Christ loves the church. So here's the thing. What does it mean to be the head of the house? It means that you love her as Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid down his life for the church. He served the church, right? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to be the servant of all. He was compassionate and gentle, that he was one that loved the church unconditionally. Husbands, that's the way we're to love our wives. And the emphasis in Ephesians 5 is not that, oh, I'm the head of the wife, so I get to walk around all dictatorial and all dominating and acting like King Tut. The emphasis is loving and cherishing. Loving and cherishing. Paul goes on and he says, you're to love your wife as, as you love your own body. So nobody hated their own body. In other words, you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and as you do that, it's going to make your wife happy. And that's my prayer is that for us husbands, let Lord help me to the best of my ability to love my wife in a very loving way, in the way that you would have me to, to live with her in an understanding way. That means that what's important to her needs to be important to you. And those things that, that she values that are important to her, you need to listen to her and need to hear her. And that's something that, that, guys, we always need God's help in that, don't we? So the Scripture has a lot to say about those things, and hopefully we'll take time out as the Lord leads me and just be able to go over those things and have this marriage enrichment classes on Thursday night like a couple times a month for February and March just to be able to be a help, not just to those who perhaps are going through difficulty in their marriage, but anybody who wants to, to know about these things, more what the Scripture has to say, and to look at these things and encourage you in your marriage. So the law concerning divorce here, and in verse 6, no man shall take the lower um, or the miller upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in the pledge. And so something here, a millstone was something that was very essential to have, so when you took that pledge, that guaranteed for that loan, you don't take something that's very essential that they needed to provide for their family. So what the Lord is saying here in this, this law is you treat people right. 
And, and you look out for their own interests. In verse 7, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren or the children of Israel or mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall die and he shall put away the evil from among you. So here, very serious punishment for kidnapping. And if you kidnapped anyone and you sell them off into slavery, you mistreat them, it was capital punishment. Now, when you think about this, who do you think about? Jacob's sons, right? Book of Genesis. They threw Joseph in a pit, sold him off into slavery. Is what they did. And then they lied to their father Jacob about it. So here, kidnapping was a capital punishment uh, offense. And we know that in the world today that we see kidnapping on the increase. You can do the research. You can see that the kidnapping of children is greatly on the increase. Selling children into prostitution in third world countries. I remember years ago, and, and John has been to Bangkok as well. It's a very, very sick place, spiritually. Where you got little boys and little girls walking the streets of Bangkok, offering themselves in prostitution. It's a dark world out there, folks. And we're seeing that more and more children are being sold into sex slavery, being kidnapped, sold into that across the world. Being in Sudan in January, southern Sudan, talking to some of the locals, talking to the chaplains that had come from different villages throughout Sudan. When the war was at its height, when the the LRA, the terrorist group, was going through the villages, that they would kidnap the kids. And they would put them into their armies or they would sell them off into slavery. Some of them have family members that they hadn't seen for years because they were kidnapped. So terrible, terrible sin. And the Lord says it is a serious sin and capital offense. In verse 8, take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all the priests. The Levites shall teach you just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. So here are the guidelines given concerning leprosy. And we saw in Leviticus chapters 12 and 13 that if leprosy was to break out, it would start out small, which is a scab or a bump, and the priest would inspect you and determine if you had leprosy. And so if he determined this is leprosy, then you would be isolated outside of the camp, Right? because leprosy was very, very contagious. And that's where you see in the gospel accounts when the lepers would cry out to Jesus because they weren't allowed to have contact with people. They weren't allowed to come into the villages. They weren't allowed to see their family. They weren't allowed to come to the synagogue. They weren't allowed to come to the temple. They were completely ostracized, completely isolated, and they would yell out to Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. And the ten lepers there in Luke's gospel that were cleansed and healed by Jesus. Now, we see in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel that one leper that came to Jesus. There was a form of leprosy that you didn't have to be isolated. But we see in that gospel account that this man was full of leprosy, is what Dr. Luke writes in his account of it. And he came to Jesus, and Jesus reached out and touched him and heal them. But leprosy was something that was very contagious, and so they would isolate the person. And he says, remember, you know, remember what happens when an outbreak of leprosy. So they would isolate him so that it wouldn't go through the whole camp. And then he says, remember what happened to Miriam? And I find that interesting. 
Now, you recall the story of Miriam. Miriam was Moses' sister. We recall in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam came against Moses, and the Lord got angry and struck Miriam with leprosy, and then she was isolated outside the camp. Leprosy in the Old Testament is a picture of sin in the New Testament. How sin can spread. It corrupts. It eats away. It's like we have seen with leaven. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, talking about sin that was in the church, he says, don't you know that a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump? You need to purge out the leaven is what you need to do. And here the Lord is saying, remember what happened to Mary. And I think what he is saying is, don't let that leprosy, don't let that sin spread because that was, can happen. And it would happen a few chapters later as it would be Korah and Dathan and Abraham and the leaders of the congregation led this rebellion against Moses once again and it spread throughout where the whole camp was coming against Moses and Aaron. So sin can spread. And he says, isolate it, get rid of it, deal with it very seriously. Remember what happened to Marian there um, as she was isolated outside the camp. And then in verse 10 when you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. And if the man is poor, you shall not pl- keep his pledge overnight. And you shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep out of his own garment and bless you. And it shall be righteous to you before the Lord your God. So in other words, when you take that pledge, again, that guarantee for a loan, you receive it in a way that you... You know, the, the man that you're taking the pledge from can keep his dignity. You don't just go storming into his house, start barking and demanding and, and being all dictatorial. Let the man bring it out to you. Let him have some dignity. And you don't keep his pledge overnight. Now, Exodus chapter 22 gives us some more insight on this because Exodus 22 says if you take a man's coat for a pledge, you need to return it to him by sundown. What is going to keep him warm at night? In other words, it goes back to treating people right. The application for you and for me as Christians, we know Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, you don't go in and, hey, I want that, and treating people wrong and stepping all over them. Do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let's each esteem others better than himself. And you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. We are to think about others, be considerate for others, treat others fairly is what we are being told. And especially as Christians, that's the way that pleases the Lord. That's the way that we should live our lives. In verse 14, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in the land within your gates. Each day you shall give him as his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against the Lord, and it be sin to you. So you pay the man's wage is what you are to do. You don't keep that payment from him. You can talk to business people that uh, are in business, and some people in the fellowship, that you will agree with me that you got a business. One of the most frustrating things today in having a business is getting paid sometimes. People paying you, paying you in a timely order. As Christians, if we hire somebody to do something, we should pay them in a manner that is timely, that is right. We don't hold off payment for the work that they have done. So again, it's treating others right. And then in verse um, 16, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death. For their fathers, a person shall be put to death for his own sin. You're responsible for your own sin. 
Not put to death because of what your father did. A person shall be put to death for their own sin. In the book of Ezekiel, we see the prophet Ezekiel, he would echo this because the, the house of Judah, those who went off into captivity, they were grinding their teeth, as Ezekiel says, had sour grapes. They were saying, we are going through this because of our father. And it was Ezekiel that says, the Lord wants you guys to put that proverb away. Let it be spoken no more. That we grind our teeth against our fathers. It's their fault that we're off into captivity. You guys sinned. And because of your sin, you're going off into captivity. They refuse to repent. So we're responsible for our own sins. Now, there has been this generational curses that have gone through the church, that doctrine. And there are those who have come along and said, because of your father or grandfather or great-grandfather, because of the iniquities that they had and the problems that they had, that that curse is passed along to you. That's why you struggle with things. That's why, you know, you have... Um, you know, perhaps the, the chastening of the Lord coming against you, the judgment of the Lord. If your father, grandfather, whatever, struggled with drugs, alcohol, abuse, that curse is passed along to you and it's generational curses. All this teaching has thought on it. And what they get that from is they get that from the Ten Commandments. There, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as it says that... Um, that uh, God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So there are those who say, see, God says he's going to visit the iniquities of the children to the third and fourth generation. And so God's going to get you, and there's generational curses that gets passed along to the third and fourth generation. So that's where that doctrine comes out. And the thing is, where we grow up and the homes that we grow up does affect us. But I don't believe that the Bible teaches about generational curses. Because when you come to Christ, behold, all things have been put away. And you're dead, the old man. And all of a sudden, as you put off the old man, as as all things have passed away, as Paul says, all things become new. You're a new creature in Christ. And you put on the new man. And as we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. So we're free from sin. We're free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean that mom and dad didn't have an effect on us, but it means that the generational curses that you're cursed because of dad and granddad and great-granddad and all of this, and that you're going to be cursed and this is what you have to do, and they make you do all kinds of crazy things to break the generational curse. What you do is you just cry out to God. He's the one that makes all things new. We're free from that, and we're responsible for our own sins. So I think it's important for us to understand this because I have people say it all the time. I have people on the phone Somebody recently doesn't go here. It says, well, my wife's going through this rebellion because it's generational curses. I said, where do you get that from? Well, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 5, that I am a jealous God visiting iniquities, you know, of the father's children to the third and fourth generation. He is God the father that loves us and frees us. He's not the Godfather that's going to get us. <laughs> All right? And I know that there are struggles and there's the flesh and all these things, but be careful when somebody talks to you about generational curses and all that. You're, you're, 
new in Christ, and, and Christ can, can, can work in your life in a wonderful way to free you from those things that, that, that you have grown up in or been you know, a part of or whatever it might be. As we continue on, we see um, that uh, he goes on and says, Verse 17, you shall not perverse justice do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. God has a very much of a heart for the widows, for the orphans, for the poor. He says, you treat them right again. Don't take a widow's garment as a pledge, but you shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of the vineyard, you shall not glean it. Afterwards, it shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. So another provision for the poor. When you harvest the, the orchards and you, you pick the trees, you don't go back a second time and get any of the, the fruit that you may have left. You leave that for the poor. Same with the vineyard. You go through, you get the grapes. You don't go through a second time. You leave that for the poor. If you're harvesting a field and you go through with the sickle and you harvest the field, you don't go back to clean it up. You leave that for the poor. Matter of fact, we also know, as we saw, that if you drop some of the grain on the ground, you were to leave it. You weren't to pick it up. That was left for the poor. Where do we see that worked out? In the book of Ruth, don't we? Remember Ruth? And it was Boaz that, that really was starting to love Ruth, and he said to his workers, hey, drop a little grain there on the ground, extra grain, a whole bunch of grain for Ruth, because she was a widow. And then what we're going to see is in the next chapter that Boaz would be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, as that's going to be talked about. We won't get to it tonight. But that was the provision for the poor. We saw last week at the end of chapter 23 that the people could go through and they could pick heads of grain in the corners of the field and they could eat that grain or pick the grapes. You just couldn't take, again, a sickle in and harvest the grain. You couldn't go in and take a basket and take a bunch of grapes out. But there was provision for them. But for you and for me, what I pray is, is that as we continue on with the Lord, walking with the Lord, abiding in Him, that people can come along and pick from us the fruit that's being produced. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. And I pray that people would see the love of Christ in us. They would be refreshed by us as they come along and glean from us. And that's my prayer for you and for me. In chapter 25, there's a dispute between men, and they come to court that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And so here in chapter 25, um, we see uh, the justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. That really is the role of government. When you go to Romans chapter uh, 13, that it says there in Romans 13, that we are to be subject to the governing authorities, doesn't it? And it goes on to talk about how they are for our own good, uh, the governing authorities. And they are for good to take care of the wicked, is what Romans chapter 13 says to us. And so um, that applies to uh, those for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, that you may have praise from God. For he is God's minister to you for good. And so we see that, you know, the role of government is to do justice. And we know that, um, that that's God's desire here is that was to take place. 
We know that in our society that there are those who are God's minister, the peace officers, therefore are good. We are to be thankful for them, as Romans 13 indicates to you and to me. They're God's ministers and uh, peace officers, as they are called. And so that's why the kids back there in the children's ministry are making those cookie trays for the sheriff's office, for the patrol, and for those uh, in the jail, and, um, and for other law enforcement um, agencies that we're going to take a few trays to on tomorrow because we need to pray for them. And we need to understand that the work that they did is honorable and it's a good work. So here was, again, setting those rulers that they may, those who come to court, that the judges may judge them. They justify the righteous, condemn the wicked. Then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Forty blows he may give him and no more, lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these, and your brother be humiliated in your sight. And so flogging was a form of punishment in ancient Israel. They could give no more than 40 lashes on an individual. Now, what they would do is they would have somebody who was delivering the you know, blows as they would flog that individual. They would have somebody, one of the Levites or religious leaders or judges, that would be counting, and they would usually give them 39 lashes just to make sure they didn't go over 40, that they didn't break the law. Now, that's Hebrew law. When Jesus was flogged, it wasn't done by the Hebrews. It was done by the Romans. So we're not sure how many lashes he took. But we do know that the Romans had what was called that cat of nine tails. And it was that string, that that leather string, the main one, and then it had different strings on it. It had pieces of metal on it to where that that person who did the flogging, that when that, that cat of nine tails would stick on the back of individual skin and then just rip the skin off. It is believed that other empires had the same kind of law, 40 lashes. We don't know how many lashes Jesus took. But we do know that he was marred more than any other man. And that he was flogged to where it was a terrible, excruciating form of punishment. And he did it for us. He did it for you and for me. And then we'll close here at verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Paul would use this verse when he was talking about his right to be supported in ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Sometimes Paul, when he went into a city, he would make tents, support himself. Other times he would be supported. But he, he was talking to the Corinthians about giving and about Christian liberty. And he said that I have the liberty to be supported in ministry. And, um, and he uses this quote here. I just want to say to you guys, thank you. It's a blessing to me for your support that I can be here full time. Me and Jim, in your support and in your giving. And, and as we close another year, I thank you for another year of giving. That we can be here and that we can minister and work and counsel and study and hospital visits and all those other things. I appreciate you taking this this verse to heart and giving to this ministry. And it, it's greatly appreciated. And we don't talk about money here at Calvary Chapel a whole lot, except when we get to it in Scripture. 
But God has been good to us. He really has. And um, it's been wonderful to, to just be able to be here and to serve you guys. And to close out another year, and I look forward to another year. If the Lord tarries, of just being here and serving and, and feeding you the Word of God and loving you and just with God's help, just being able to minister and being available. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for, Lord, this time together in, in your Word, and we thank you again for this time of year. And, Lord, we do pray. Uh, we want to lift up those who are for our good, ministers of God, the peace officers that are in our community in Weld County. We thank you for their work, and, Lord, um, we just pray that... Um, that this gift from the kids would just be a blessing to them and show appreciation to them. We pray for your protection upon them. We thank you for them. And Lord, I just pray for us that we would be ones that, Lord, again, that you would work in our lives and our lives would produce fruit that would be a blessing to others.